0: This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, we'll remember Juanita Evangeline Moore, daughter of slain civil rights activists Harry T. and Harriet V. Moore.
1: The announcement was made by my uncle at the train station that the house had been bombed, my dad was dead, and my mother was in the hospital.
0: Fifty-five years before the Pilgrims landed at Plymouth
2: Rock, the real first Thanksgiving was held in Florida. There are actually only two written narratives of the account that that survive today. It's believed that uh, Menendez might have a written narrative that survived for at least a few decades, but it's lost now. We don't know where it is.
0: And we'll discuss sheet music of songs about Florida. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers.
3: It seems I hear Harry Moore from the earth, his voice still cries. No bomb can kill the dreams I hold, for freedom never dies. Freedom never dies, I say, freedom never dies. No bomb can kill the dreams I hold, for freedom never dies. It happened in Florida, the land of flowers, it was on a Christmas night. Men came stealing through the orange grove, men of hate carrying dynamite. It was to a little cottage, the family the name of Moore. At the window hung sprigs of holly, a fine wreath at the door. It was on a Christmas evening and the family prayers were said Mother, father, daughter and grandmother went to bed The father's name was Harry Moore of the NAACP. He fought for the life for us to live. Black folk must be free.
0: The Ballad of Harry Moore by Langston Hughes tells the story of slain civil rights activist and educator Harry T. Moore, who was killed when a bomb exploded under his home in Mims, Florida, on Christmas night 1951. His wife, Harriet, died nine days later from injuries sustained in the blast. The Moore's daughter, Juanita Evangeline Moore, dedicated her life to preserving her parents' legacy as the first martyrs of the contemporary civil rights movement. Evangeline Moore died on October 26th and was buried next to her parents at LaGrange Cemetery in Mims on November 14th. Moore arrived at her parents' home site from Washington, D.C. two days after it had been bombed in 1951. Photographs from the Florida State Archives show what she saw that day, a home so severely damaged by the bomb that it was knocked off of its foundation. Evangeline Moore has discussed her parents' legacy on this program several times. A few years ago, we spoke in a replica of her family home that sits where the original home once stood. As she looked around the reconstructed house, it brought mixed emotions for her.
1: Yes, but mostly pleasant ones because uh, it looks so much nicer. I remember when I came home uh, that Christmas, I arrived on the 27th of uh, December, and one of the first stops we made after the announcement was made by my uncle at the train station that the house had been bombed, my dad was dead, and my mother was in the hospital. I did come back to the house. Uh, It was, I can't I can't explain the feeling that I had. I walked in the front door, and as you can see, I could see my parents' bedroom, big hole, and the the mattress and the bed and everything was in that hole, and parts of the ceiling rafters was all there. Um, I walked to the dining room, looked in our bedroom, my sister's in my bedroom, and I saw that uh, her, her bed was really under the double windows in there. Um, it was filled with just finely slivered glass and I knew at that moment that had I been home She would have been dead also, so I I couldn't go any further. So to come back and see it looking very much like the house was, it's very comforting.
0: After seeing her family home nearly destroyed, Evangeline Moore never returned. There are photographs of Evangeline Moore as a young girl in and around her family home, sitting on the front porch and at the dining room table. Now that the replica of her family home is complete, she says it allows her to focus on pleasant memories.
1: I don't know really how to explain, but there was so much love and, and, and just, just a house full of love. And, of course, I helped my dad a lot with the work that he was doing with the NAACP and the Progressive Voters League. My sister was an avid reader, and she took very little part in any of the work that dad was doing, she, she was always still a corner somewhere reading a book. Um uh, but the 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 love between my sister and me was something that was very, very unusual, even though we were very different in nature. Um and my mother, I mean she was she was an absolute angel. And I, I can just remember the, the love and the warmth that surrounded me while I was here. And my, my parents were very affectionate, both to my sister and me and to themselves, because I remember oftentimes just we were walking through the house and I I could actually see my parents in any room in the house and they would be embracing. And I thought that's something that doesn't happen too often, but it has, it has gone with me throughout my lifetime. I was never fortunate to have that type of relationship, but I remembered the, the love and warmth that I felt in this house and the caring that um, coming back and seeing it very much like it was is a tremendous, tremendous uh, joy and a comfort to me.
0: An antique typewriter sits on a small table next to where Evangeline Moore and I spoke. Harry T. Moore was a prolific letter writer calling for investigations into lynchings in Florida and working for the NAACP. While he traveled around the state registering African Americans to vote and encouraging membership in the NAACP, he did his writing from his home in MIMS. Evangeline Moore says she didn't realize the significance of his work at the time.
1: No, I didn't. He was just to me. He was just daddy, and I knew. I mean, I knew that he was doing some work, but I didn't recognize the the tremendous effect that it was having on citizens of America. Until after he was dead and I was, you know, after actually after Ben Green wrote his book, it was only then that I realized the magnitude of the work that my dad had done. Although I helped him because I can remember running off sample ballots on the Ditto machine and addressing envelopes, and licking envelopes, and licking stamps, and of course always trailing behind my dad when he would go to the post office to mail him. I knew he was doing something that was very important, but um, I just didn't at that time realize exactly the magnitude of what he was doing.
0: The Harry T. and Harriet V. Moore Cultural Complex includes a civil rights museum as well as the Moore family home replica. Most recently, the Moore Center unveiled a meditation garden, reflecting pool, and gazebo. Water flows over quotes from Harry T. Moore and Martin Luther King, Jr. The story of Harry T. Moore has gained much more recognition over the past decade, beginning with the Ben Green book Before His Time, The Untold Story of Harry T. Moore, America's First Civil Rights Martyr, and the PBS documentary Freedom Never Dies. Annual recognitions include a memorial at the Moore Gravesite and the Moore Heritage Festival of the Arts and Humanities. Although all this is a step in the right direction, Evangeline Moore says her parents still don't get the recognition they deserve.
1: They deserve a whole lot more. They really do. he, he, He has not really been given the recognition that he should have, particularly here in the United States. This is a start, but he, I mean, he should be he should be far, I mean, there should be stories about him even above Martin Luther King because dad laid the foundation for what Martin Luther King ultimately was able to do himself. And I think it's a shame that uh, every time Black History Week, um, a month, and all this stuff, dad should be at the top of the list when you start talking about people who gave their lives so that black people could have equal rights.
0: While there is still much to be done, Bill Gary of the North Brevard NAACP says awareness about the Moors is growing.
4: There has uh, been um, quite a bit of progress along those lines here uh, in recent years. Uh, uh, one of the things that I think um, is going to help us tremendously um, is uh, we happen to have an opportunity to meet with Dr. Lonnie Bunch, who is Director of the National African American Museum of History and Culture in Washington, D.C. at the Smithsonian. Uh, We gave him a presentation about the Moors and asked um, for his consideration in including the Moors in the new uh, National Museum that's gonna be built on the Washington Mall. Uh, He was receptive to that idea and uh, over some months of correspondence has assured us that the Moors would have a place uh, our task now is to develop an appropriate presentation uh, that would go into that space uh, in the new National Museum there.
0: Young African Americans today are looking at race much differently than previous generations. Evangeline Moore says that having an African American president demonstrates limitless opportunities, but that young people need to remember that the work of her father and others made Barack Obama's presidency possible.
1: I'm just so elated uh that president and mrs obama are in the white house with their daughters and um there are a lot of observations that i make daily um uh, the 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 relationship and the love and affection that i can see which transpires between President Obama and his wife and his two little girls reminds me a lot of the relationship that my mother, my father, my sister, and I had.
0: The Moore Cultural Complex is located on Freedom Avenue in Mims, just north of Titusville in North Brevard County. Juanita Evangeline Moore, daughter of Harry T. and Harriet V. Moore, died on October 26th. She was buried next to her parents in Mims on November 14th.
3: It seems I hear Harry Moore from the earth, his voice still cries. No bomb can kill the dreams I hold, for freedom never dies. Freedom never dies, I say. Freedom never dies. No bomb can kill the dreams I hold, for freedom never dies. When will people in Jesus' name and when will they by prayer know that each one has the right to stand up everywhere when will people for the sake of peace and the sake of democracy know that no bomb you can make can stop us from being free it seems i hear harry moore from the earth's voice still cries No bomb can kill the dreams I hold, for freedom never dies. So if you see our Harry Moore walking on a Christmas night, don't you fear and run and hide, he has no dynamite. For in his heart is only love for all the human race. All he wants is for each of us to have our rightful place. Mm-hmm. And this, he says, i have remorse as from the grave he cries. No bomb can kill the dreams I hold, for freedom never dies. Freedom never dies, I say, freedom never dies. No bomb can kill the dreams I hold for, freedom
0: never dies. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find great books on Florida history and culture, read our Florida Frontiers blog, and become a member of the Florida Historical Society. You'll receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and much more. You can also find us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society to get our daily posts Today in Florida History. If you miss an episode of Florida Frontiers on the radio, subscribe to the Florida Frontiers podcast using your favorite podcast app.
5: We've come to the time in the season where family and friends gather offer a prayer of thanksgiving for blessings we've known through the year to join hands and thank the creator now when thanksgiving is due this year when I count my blessings
0: thanking the
5: lord he made you
0: Fifty-five years before the Pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock, Spanish colonists in St. Augustine shared a feast of Thanksgiving with Native Americans in Florida. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, you have some rare books here that indicate that the real first Thanksgiving took place right here
2: in Florida. Yeah, it's really an interesting uh, point in in the History of the Spanish presence in Florida. And most people who are interested in Florida history and and scholars are familiar with the 1565 Spanish expedition of uh, Pedro Menendez de Aviles when he established uh, St. Augustine. But what's sort of an interesting side note is that as part of that expedition, when they first met with the native people um, and established the town, they held a small mass, a small service on the site that is now St. Anastasia Island. So it's actually on the barrier island of where modern St. Augustine is now. But they also dined with the Indians and had what we would consider sort of the first Thanksgiving, if you will, sort of the first meeting and actual sitting down of the table and, and breaking bread, if you will, with the native peoples of, of Northeast Florida.
0: Now, one of the sources you have for this uh, real first Thanksgiving is from uh, historian Michael Gannon.
2: Yeah, that's right. And, and Dr. Gannon has for decades really been the, the preeminent scholar uh, on not only Catholic presence in, in Florida, but also the early colonial presence, and uh, he published a book in the 1960s entitled uh, "Cross in the Sand," which is still—it's actually still in print today—and it's one of the best sources for the uh, the history of the Catholic and Spanish presence in Florida. But he uh, actually went through a lot of the original um, original accounts and pieced together what this first Thanksgiving dinner would have actually looked like, and he used a couple of sources uh, that we know of. There are actually only two written narratives of the of the account that that survive today. It's it's believed that uh, Menendez might have uh, a written narrative that, that uh, survived for at least a few decades, but it, it's lost now. We don't know where it is, but one of those accounts was from the uh, priest who was on the expedition, Father Francisco uh, Lopez, who there's actually a statue of him up in, in St. Augustine now. Um, the other gentleman was uh, a doctor, Dr. Gonzalo Soles de Meras, and he was actually Pedro Menendez's brother-in-law and he was the official recorder of the of the expedition. And it's interesting because both men picked up different aspects of the, of the meeting. For instance, Father Francisco Lopez obviously officiated the, the ceremony, and he talks about the Indians mimicking the, the Spanish, you know, when they were bowing down in front of the cross. And according to his account, it seemed like the Indians were, were intrigued and interested, but weren't really sure what was going on. Uh, but in the Solas de Merez account, he actually talks about uh, Menendez uh, feeding and dining with the Indians, and then uh, after the Mass was said, they dined, and then Menendez sort of went on his way and, and they went about continuing to build the fort at St. Augustine.
0: Now, just as an interesting uh, sidebar, uh, the, one of the copies of The Cross on the Sand by Michael Gannon that you have in the uh, Florida Historical Society archived is actually uh, originally inscribed to uh, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas.
2: Yeah, that's right. And that's another kind of interesting aspect of, of one of our items in our collection. Yeah, it, was, it was, uh, looks like it was given to Marjorie Stillman Douglas sometime in the late 1970s, 1978. Although the book we have is a second edition, so it was printed in 1967. Marjorie Douglas must have uh, ran into him at some point and happened to have the book. And, and he wrote a little inscription here that said, uh, with the admiration and kindest wishes of Michael Vegan. And, and it's dated here November 16, 1978.
0: Now, as you mentioned, Michael Gannon uh, quotes Father Francisco Lopez, the priest who gave the first mass in St. Augustine just before this Thanksgiving feast in 1565 and and other contemporary sources as well. Gannon was using uh, the primary source material, as you said, but you also have some of that in the archive.
2: Yeah, that's correct. Um, I had mentioned the uh, Solas de Meras account, and it was originally published in Spain and in the Spanish language shortly after the expedition, 1567, and it was lost for centuries, and it actually wasn't fully published until 1893, but it was still published in Spanish. But in the 1920s, a uh, historian, a Florida historian by the name of uh, Jeanette Thurber Conner, who was a member of the Florida State Historical Society, another contemporary organization with the Florida Historical Society, translated the entire account. That translation is what Dr. Gannon used as a primary source. And it is, to this date, as far as I know, it's the only English translation of that eyewitness account.
0: Now, historian Michael Gannon has said that the real first Thanksgiving in Florida consisted of a stew of salted pork and garbanzo beans with ship's bread and and red wine. I think I'm going to stick with uh, the pilgrim's menu this year.
2: Yeah, I have to agree with you there. I think the canned cranberries uh, sound a little bit better than uh, the peas and and hard bread. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Ben. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is director of
0: educational resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa
5: and I'll go on my way, grateful for all of the years. Thank you for all that you gave me, for teaching me what love can do. Thanksgiving Day for the rest of my life, thanking the Lord He made you. Thanksgiving Day for the rest of my life, thanking the Lord who made you.
0: This is Florida Frontiers. While Old Folks at Home is the official state song of Florida, many more songs have been written about the state. Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com talks with a man who collects Florida sheet music.
6: You know, music has has never really been a prime tool for scholarship, and and that's a shame because, at least prior to radio, music, and sheet music in particular, was one of the most effective communications devices that... um, existed, especially in the 1800s.
7: That was Danny Crew, talking about the impact of music on history. Mr. Crew is the creator of the Florida Sheet Music Project, which can be found at floridasheetmusic.com. He's amassed a huge collection of sheet music and is digitizing sheet music about Florida, or sheet music authored by Florida musicians. Here, Mr. Crew tells us how he got interested in this project.
6: My real collection is in, in political sheet music. I have the nation's largest collection of political sheet music, and have published four books on it. As a side collection, about oh, 40 years ago, I guess I started collecting Florida music. Uh, Florida has been my home for forever, and I went to high school here, and college, and all that. So, and I was always fascinated by by the history of Florida. It's it's so unique. And then in the 90s, the internet came along, and opened up a tremendously wide Venue for searching for music uh, worldwide, um, and in the twenty years since then, I've, my new collection is, is almost eight thousand pieces of Florida sheet music. It's really, it's really been been a huge um, boon to the to the um, search business to being able to to look worldwide for these items.
7: Mr. Crew explains why songs about states and locations became so popular.
6: Early in the in the twentieth century. You could go down to your local music store or to a music publisher. If you had a tune, for example, they would have composers in residence that would write songs for you. A lot of these things are self-published. A lot of them are ten pan alley. Every topic was covered. It didn't matter what it was. And Florida was just another one of those topics. You see similar type of songs in other states uh, all around the country. Everything from you know California Here We Come to the beautiful Ohio. There's there's a lot of songs like that you know that that are state oriented. Um, you know, the idea was to sell them to people who, you know, had those memories and and enhance those memories.
7: Here, Mr. Crew points to some notable musicians to tell us that we should not be surprised that there have been so many songs to originate out of the state of Florida.
6: And I was absolutely amazed by people who are native Floridians that have had a written music, and, and, you know, most of these names have, have long been lost to history, and people don't, don't know them that well. Um, until you until you mention some of the songs that were written. For example, the, the Black National Anthem, Lift Every Voice and Sing was written by a Floridian. Strangers in the Night, Frank Sinatra's big hit was written by a Floridian. You know, there's just, it, it goes on and on and on uh, that the, the Florida has produced such a wealth of, of talent that most people don't know about.
7: Mr. Crew tells us about familiar themes and places that keep popping up in Florida songs.
6: The idea of living in paradise is, is one of the themes that you see consistently. Everything from things like Moon Over Miami, which was written in the 30s, to songs even back in the 1800s about the Suwannee River. You know, the Suwannee River, I think, is one of the, the big, probably the biggest theme in Florida music. I, I have over 1,200 different editions of just of songs about the Suwannee River. It became more than just about the Suwannee River. It it almost substituted for the South itself.
7: Of course, like most enterprises based in Florida, the songs about sunshine, good times, and cool ocean breezes was just the latest in a long history of developers trying to draw people to Florida. Mr. Crew explains.
6: I think it's kind of interesting to see how some of the music was, was actually... Uh, written and promoted for real estate developers, which is kind of like the, you know, the signature of Florida, at least since the 1920s, that these companies would put out these songs and you could actually, some of them you could actually fold over and mail to people up north and and try to get them to come down here and buy in these developments. I, I thought that was an interesting and kind of a unique thing that I've not really seen other places around the country. It's kind of unique to Florida's music. Most of it's pretty hackneyed music. The music itself is, is, is generally of little value. But the lyrics are interesting because this attitude and, and this vision of Florida as, as a paradise and, and a place where you'd want to come and live.
7: That was Danny Crew, and I'm Robert Casanello with Florida Frontiers. You've been listening to Florida
0: Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week If you're on the run, you can listen to Florida Frontiers as a podcast on your favorite mobile device. Just subscribe to Florida Frontiers through your favorite podcast app. You can also catch us online anytime at myfloridahistory.org. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Robert Casanello. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brookmarkle.